Well, good morning to you all, and uh, good morning to those who are joining us online as well. My name is Dave. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm our lead pastor here at Summit Drive. You've seen those personality tests, right? It's got like a golden retriever or a dolphin or there's other things. I know. I know it is. I know. I feel like there should be another category there for me when I was younger, however. The raccoon. Ah, that's a nice picture of a raccoon. Sometimes we use another term to describe them, though, and that would be the trash panda. That is more like me. See, I worked hard, I saved money, and for the most part put myself through university in some creative ways. For a season, I would hitchhike. It was about five and a half kilometers from where I lived up University Way in Prince George, and the bus system was awful, so I got a lot of exercise. I walked to school, I thumbed rides as often as I could, it was often minus 35, uphill both ways, of course, you know, I gotta be honest about that piece. I was walking with the moose in the dark most of the time. You know, I didn't, I didn't go to movies hardly ever, I think I saw two the whole time I was in university. I rarely ate out, uh, but there was another way I creatively made it through those lean years, and that's back to the trash panda thing. See, I, um, <laughs> I would study in the upper, I think it was called the Agora or something like that at UNBC, and I would study there, and I'd be working on things, but I'd also have my eye out. See, there'd be some, you know, create, uh, some rich young ruler out there who'd eat half a sandwich and leave the other half on their plate and just leave it for the staff to clean up. Wouldn't even take care of themselves. Well, I'll tell you what, I cleaned up. I would be right in there. <laughs> you know, half a plate, of, a, a plate of pasta left on someone's plate there, no skin off my teeth. In fact, my teeth thought it was delicious, especially when you're that kind of hungry. And it's not like I'd never done that sort of thing before. Um, <laughs> my mom just laughed, and she knows why. See, during the 80s, there was a recession. Some of you remember. Some of you remember 26% interest rates, Right? And my dad's work, his union locked us, locked him out for seven months, didn't have any work. There was no food bank in Salmon Arm. So our parents got creative. My dad saw the guys at Safeway dumping food into the dumpster, and he thought, okay, there's going to be a way to feed our family somehow. And so he would lift me, I was seven years old, and my brother into the dumpster, and we would salvage what we could of the food. Uh, that's how we ate for about seven months. That's how we fed our family. And actually, there was one of the guys, one of the workers at Safeway, who noticed our family doing this. And so he would leave aside things that were still good, but weren't, you know, for our family to come and, and, and pick up. For people like that, like us, like me in the 80s, like me in the cafeteria in the 90s, like most of the world's population, actually, for all of history, the Bible has some very good news. And we're going to find out a little bit more about that news today. We're going to start by looking at some song lyrics. See, it's a, it's a worship song. It's a hymn, actually. And it sounds fitting for a series called A Scribe, a series on worship, right, to be talking about songs. But the German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was the first person actually to speak out publicly against the Nazi ideology. Back in the 30s, 1933, I believe, he did a, a, a radio presentation. They cut it off because he was speaking against Hitler himself and the ideas that Hitler was bringing forward. So this pastor 
says this about this song. He said, this is the most passionate, most vehement, one might say most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. Sounds like quite a song, but more. (laughs) Over the last century, this song was outlawed in at least three countries. It was outlawed in India. Not allowed to sing it in church. Why? Because it was, well, it was powerfully subversive, and the authorities knew it. It was outlawed in, uh, in the 1980s in Guatemala for a time. The song lyrics were creating such a stir among Guatemala's impoverished masses, it was inspiring them that change was actually possible. So the government banned it for a time. You couldn't even recite these lyrics anywhere. In Argentina, the mothers of Plaza de Mayo, whose children disappeared during what was called the Dirty War in the 1970s, they placed these lyrics on signboards to protest. So the military government at the time outlawed the pu- any public display of this song. Curious about what the song is? It doesn't come from someone who you would probably consider a revolutionary, at least, well, we'll maybe change that today, but from a poor, young, unassuming woman. Oh, also the song is found in your Bibles. It's in Luke chapter 1, and it goes like this. And Mary, yes, that Mary, the one who is now pregnant with God's own son. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And at that point, we might think, okay, that's a great song. Uh, In fact, we, we, we call the song the Magnificat. It's from the Latin word for my soul glorifies or my soul magnifies The Lord, but we might wonder, what is the fuss about that song? I mean, my soul rejoices because God is at work in my midst. Great. We could easily throw three or four chords over that and sing it in church and revolutionary. No, we don't really see that. But listen what she says next, for she continues. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Scatters the proud, fills the hungry, casts down the mighty, lifts up the lowly, sends the rich away. No wonder Bonhoeffer goes on to say this about Mary's song. It's not the gentle, sweet, dreamy Mary that we often see portrayed in pictures, but the passionate, powerful, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks here. None of the sweet, sugary, or childish tones that we find so often in our Christmas hymns, but a hard, strong, uncompromising song of bringing down rulers from their thrones and humbling the lords of the world. 
of God's power and of the powerlessness of men. These are the tones of the prophetic women of the Old Testament, Deborah, Judith, Miriam, coming alive in the mouth of Mary. It's from one of his Advent sermons. When we stand next to those who are hungry, those who have been oppressed, those who have very little, those who have been taken advantage of, these words are life and joy. These are hope and revolution. There's that song from the 1980s, some of you might remember, Mary, did you know, right? Did you know that your baby boy would X, Y, Z? It seems like Mary does know at least something about what her son has come to do, what he's come to accomplish. Every single line of this song that we just read is borrowed from the Old Testament, It's promises of God's great reversal, of God's coming kingdom, a time where justice is given to those who've been oppressed and mistreated, when oppressors are actually brought to account. And the humble and the hungry, well, they find hope and food. (laughs) There's this image of Mary drawn by a guy named Ben Wildflower. I, I think it often maybe disrupts the image that we have of Mary in our minds, the timid, frightened, helpless Mary. Maybe it helps see her from a different angle, and based on this song that she sings, a more needed one. Mary connects her task with the big story of God's saving and healing work. And this song, her song, declares victory over evil and the injustice that falls out from it. Now, in our series on worship, Ascribe, we've been, we've been talking about giving ourselves back to God, that that's at the heart of worship. And this week, we'll, we'll see how our whole life offering means aligning ourselves with God's kingdom and God's kingdom ways, His vision for a just world. So today, we're going to see this. We'll see how true words of worship are authenticated by works of justice. And we'll do it by first looking at Mary's song and then looking at Mary's Son. Let's pray as we begin. God, we ask that you open our hearts and minds to hear your word, that we might ascribe the glory that is due only to you. And God, open our hands and send our feet to love you and others for all your worth. Amen. So, first, Mary's song. We're probably wondering why, you know. What does Mary mean when she speaks of the the humble and the hungry being lifted and filled? And maybe we're even more concerned with, what does she mean when she says that the proud and the rich are going to be brought down and sent away? Like, what does that mean for us who have money? And if we're honest, that's pretty much everyone in this room. What does that mean for us? That's probably what you're asking. So, humble and hungry could be a reference to those who are humble before God and hungry for spiritual renewal. That's probably true of Mary and those like her, but it's much more than that. Uh, Scholar I. Howard Marshall says this. It's it's more than that. It's a reference to economic poverty and political uh, oppression. Those things are included, he says. Mary is truly humble before God and hungry for God to work. That's why God chooses her to bear his only son, God the Son, within her. But she's also among those who are literally impoverished because of the oppression of the Roman Empire and emperor. 
So what Marshall notes next is really important. He says this, the Messiah, speaking about Jesus, acted on their behalf by bringing in the kingdom of God with its associated blessings and by pronouncing God's judgment on the proud, verse 51, and the rich, verse 53, who would have been understood as owing their positions of power and of wealth to injustice. The proud in Mary's song are those who live with self at the center. They're living self-interested. Ultimately, pride is an affront to God. It says, I don't want God. I don't need God. Actually, I want to do life on my own terms. I want to be in control. That's at the heart of all sin, actually. It's saying, I don't want God's will. I don't want God's ways. I want the power. And living like that with self, et cetera, is what leads to injustices. It leads you to justify doing things to get and keep wealth and power for yourself at the expense of others. So God's desire, you see, is that all people be treated with equity, with equality. That the image of God, which is present in every single person, would be honored and respected. In fact, God God created the world with a desire that all people be treated with dignity as image bearers. And he calls his people, beginning with Abraham and all of those who who would say, I'm aligned with God's purposes, he calls them to be a people of righteousness and justice, to be reflective of his desires for the world. But what does the Bible mean by those? See, that, that Hebrew word um, tzaddika, it's often translated righteousness, which is not a word that we use often today. And when we think of righteous, we think, okay, that probably means like being a good person, pretty vague sense. Or, you know, more likely it gets used in our culture in this way, that person is so self-righteous, meaning they think they're so much better than everyone else. It's the, almost the only place that we still use it in our culture today, right? The word... Sadika is about having a right relationship with other people. It's about treating others as the image of God. It's about respecting the God-given worth and value and dignity of every single person. And that word justice in Hebrew is mishpat. And yes, it can refer to uh, retributive justice. That's like you're going to have to pay if you do a crime. That's important, actually. It's a deterrent for people committing crimes, right? That there is retribution for it. Uh, Almost every time that the Bible uses the word mishpat, however, is in reference to restorative or distributive justice. Well, well, what does does that mean? (laughs) Well, it just means this. Um, It means seeking out and drawing near to those who have been mistreated, who have been taken advantage of who've been in oppressive situations. And it's not just being kind to them in a vague sort of way, but actively seeking to address the very reasons people are in those situations. It's about advocating for the vulnerable and seeking to change systems or situations that keep people from thriving, that keep holding people down. This is what These words of the prophets, prophets like Jeremiah were all about. This is Jeremiah 22, verse 3. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just, mishpat, and right, tzaddikah. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. You see that? That's active. 
that's actively drawing near to and seeking to change oppressive systems. That's what God is asking of his people. And then he goes on to say it in the negative sense too, like don't be a part of injustice. He says, do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. And and, and here's where I want us to push into more today is because of the deep connection between justice and worship. See, Isaiah says that, well, it it has the Lord in the book of Isaiah, the Lord is critiquing Israel's approach to worship. He says this just in chapter one, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense, he says, is detestable to me. And more, when you spread your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Why would God not, not listen to the prayers of his people? Here's why. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Here's what God is looking for. And this is similar to what we just read in Jeremiah. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Now, here's two big ideas of how this connects worship and justice. Number one, first, God will not accept the worship or prayer of people who are unrepentantly doing wrong. If you think, oh, I can oppress other people and God doesn't care, he's not listening to you. That's, that's what this text says. Second thing, God calls his people to be those who learn to do what is right, who seek justice actively, to actively defend the oppressed, to take up the cause of the fatherless and the widow. So, so here's really the first key reality that we need to see. True worship of the true God is authenticated by how we live in relation to his vision of justice in our world, his heart for the world. And Mary's heart and Mary's song are attuned to that. And the injustice of the world comes actually into really sharp focus when Mary and her husband Joseph have to make this journey to Bethlehem where Mary gives birth to her baby boy. No one embodies proud and rich like she speaks of in her song. No one embodies it quite like King Herod, Herod the Great of their day. I mean, this, this guy is a false king. He's been appointed to be king over the Jews by the Romans. He is corrupt to the core. If you looked up power hungry in the dictionary at that time, it's his face that you would see. And so the cast down the mighty language is heightened actually when we consider the geography of Bethlehem. See, from any place that you are in the town of Bethlehem, the little town of Bethlehem, if you look southeast, there is one feature that dominates the landscape. From the stable or cave in which Jesus lay in a meager feeding trough, as one writer says, Mary would have seen Herod the Great's majestic palatial resort, which was known as Herodium. It was and still is impossible to miss from any part of Bethlehem. For you see, Herodium sits atop a man-made mountain nearly 2,500 feet high. At the time, it was the largest palatial complex in the Roman world. That resort was built 
by money that was taken from the rest of the people. That was about his comfort. That was about his status. That was about his wealth. And it was taken unjustly. It was robbed from people. This resort built by robbing the poor to bring comfort and status to the powerful powerfully demonstrates the reason for Mary's song in the first place and the focus of Mary's confidence. She knows that the sun now growing inside her body will win back the world for justice. But this is important to see. Let's look at Mary's son now. The song Mary sings is not about a human solution to a simply human problem. Mary who's agreed to play her part in God's redeeming work. She gives praise to God. My soul glorifies the Lord. She knows that the healing work, the world healing work, is a God-sized work. It is a God-planned work, and it is a God-fulfilled sort of work. So there's this deep sense of trust that's welling up in her that explodes in praise. And that's key point number two is this. Any form of justice that's done in the world, if it is not aimed at bringing glory to God, is not in line with the Scriptures. She starts and ends where it all starts and ends, by glorifying God. God gets all the glory. She looks to God in praise. She looks with longing confidence to God, believing that God will accomplish what He intends to. This is an important distinction for how justice is often viewed in our world today. Generally, justice is viewed as human might overthrowing a human oppressor. Now, I'm oversimplifying here, and I know that. I don't have time to go into more detail. But basically, human revolutions often run along these lines. An oppressed group pushes back against their oppressor, often through violence, and they feel that, they can, that, justi- that violence is justified because of the injustice. But what happens is that just one oppressor uh, is taken down and, and that other group that takes him down becomes the oppressor. And it's, it's just this cycle of power grabs. The problem becomes, of course, when it's just that. Now, that's the essence of what French philosopher Michel Foucault and his critique of power centers on. He would say that truth claims are, in their essence, power plays. They're just a way of trying to get power over other people. They're a way to justify revolution where power is simply being exchanged. Here's why Mary's song is ultimately so different. Because it hinges on Mary's son. See, as Jesus grows up, he comes saying that his work is to fulfill God's design for a just world. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he, he gets up actually in a worship service and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61 and he borrows a quote from Isaiah 58, which we've actually made reference to already this morning. Look at Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 16. He, Jesus, went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up and read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Pardon me, he stood up to read. It was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So he seeks out this line. He finds it, and it says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom 
for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What does that mean? Today. Well, he means that his arrival spells the beginning of God's kingdom coming in a fresh way. Mary's song is about the work that will come through Mary's son. And this work entails bringing about God's will and God's ways to every corner of our existence. And the next chapters of Luke's gospel really show exactly what this means. See, immediately after this, well, after the people try to throw Jesus off a cliff because, you know, he was essentially saying that God was working not just in Israel but outside of Israel. So they try to kill him. Interesting. Right after that, he, um, he runs into a man who has an evil spirit and he casts out that evil spirit. He's releasing people. He's liberating others. After that, the next thing he does is he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Then he preaches good news of God's coming kingdom. Then he forgives and heals a man who's been paralyzed. He goes for dinner with prostitutes next and tax collectors in order to show them the way back to God. He feeds his hungry followers and then he teaches them to love their enemies. He even heals the son of a Roman centurion. That's a big deal. These are Israel's oppressors. And when one humbly comes to him, says, my son is sick, he says, go, he's going to be well. Jesus is showing that what God is doing is not just for Israel, but for the whole of the world. And that's just the next three chapters. Keep reading the gospel of Luke. So Jesus is bringing about this great reversal that Mary sings of. But we might wonder, did Mary know how her son would bring about this justice? Did she expect that the Messiah would use force to kick out the rulers from their positions of power? Did she realize that his mercy and salvation would actually extend beyond the borders of the people of Israel? The answer, probably not. No, she probably held the same expectations as those around her, and they expected that because he was coming in the line of David, David the great king, David the great military leader, that he would lead like that. David whose hands were bloodied from battle. And this is the reason why when we read through the Gospels, Jesus keeps doing this thing. People will come up to him and say this, are you the Messiah? Do you notice that Jesus dodges that question? Go read through Mark's gospel in particular. He will have absolute silence called the messianic secret. He will not engage people on that question. Why? Because if he says, I'm the Messiah, they're going to say, great, grab your swords, everybody. We're following him. They were looking for a revolutionary to kick out the Romans. They were excited that he could feed the masses because that means he could feed an army. And so Jesus dodges these questions because he has come to do something completely different. He subverts those expectations. In fact, where Jesus reads from Isaiah, right? He opens up the Isaiah text and reads from it. He leaves out a line from Isaiah. And I think there's a good reason for it. He says things like this, proclaim good news to the poor. Yes. Freedom for the captives. He keeps those lines, but he takes this one out. The day of vengeance of God, of our God. And I think that is a hint. It's a little wink and a nudge. It's a clue for how he will win the victory. 
See, it turns out that Jesus is a ruler with blood on his hands. Except the blood that's on his hands is his own. For his hands are nailed to a plank of wood. His blood is poured out to make enemies into friends. To make us into his friends. His hands are nailed down so that our hands could be freed. That's why we need to see this next part. This is the the third key point, that justice Jesus brings, it doesn't create new oppressors. It's of a wholly different sort. And unfortunately, the history of the church, uh, in the history of the church, that hasn't always been the case. But here's what I would say. That only happens where Christians act in ways out of line with the shape of the cross when the meaning of the cross is hidden. You have to move away from the meaning of the cross in order to act with violence toward others. When the meaning of the cross is spun for imperialistic purposes, that's when things go wrong. But you have to see this, the cross, is the site where God forgives his enemies by demonstrating his love for those who aimed at his destruction. And he says to you and to me, do the same. Forgive them. And when Jesus is raised from the dead and appears to his disciples, he shows them his hands and his feet. He lets them touch the places where violence and injustice were done to him. Of course, at one level, probably the most important level, This is assurance that, yes, he really has been raised in a real body. He's not a ghost. This is not an apparition. He's in an honest-to-goodness body that's been raised by God the Father. That's probably the most important thing he says here. But there's something else, too. It does something else. Those who placed their hands in his scars would then be tasked to walk out that message of hope and restoration and forgiveness into the world. But they, like Jesus, would carry no sword to do it. They, like Jesus, would resist the urge toward force and fury. They, like Jesus, would be wounded but would not retaliate. They, like Jesus, would come to have their own scars, and these would demonstrate to the watching world the powerful resurrection life of God within them. For they were a people of forgiveness. They would give deeply for all kinds of sakes of justice. They would rescue babies who were being aborted and left at the dump pile to be exposed and to die. That's where the orphanage idea came from, was these early Christians thinking, that's not right. They would distribute their wealth to care for the sick, the poor, the widow, the orphan. That was just normal life for the early Christians. So what is this maybe look like for us and for our worship? Well, I'm going to start kind of big picture, and then I'm going to try to bring it down to some really specific things as well. I mean, perhaps one of the most clearest, obvious examples of injustice that continues in our day is the evil of racism. I mean, the transatlantic slave trade, where people were forcibly taken from Africa, shipped across the ocean to America, and simply treated as non-human, is one of the major stains on the history of the world. And the modern era, the work of William Wilberforce in the 1700s, it was 40 years where he addressed the system to change the laws in Britain and outlaw the practice. God's call on Wilberforce, he thought he was going to be a pastor, and God said, no, you need to enter the political realm. 
not to reinforce the status quo or to keep your own tribe comfortable. No, he worked with dogged determination to change an unjust system. And in in no way did it benefit him personally. I think that's key for how we think about justice to you. Are you Are you just after this for you or is it someone else who benefits that has no bearing on you whatsoever? He is a model of Jesus-centered political action. But we might wonder, why did it take so long? 40 years? 40 years? It's like people in Britain at that time actually read the Bible. How could that be? Why 40 years? Well, because investors got wealthy. That's why. They had money. They had comfort. The system of slavery was propping that up. And they loved their money and they loved their comfort more than they loved God. They found ways to ignore the clear teaching of Scripture about the inherent worth of all people and the need to follow what Jesus said, do for others what you would have them do for you. Their self-interest was prioritized over living in God's ways of justice. And even after the end of the slave trade, there was a long-standing fallout for how people of African descent were treated in in the Americas. I mean, it meant black people couldn't vote in America. They were not recognized as fully human yet. Enter Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., John Perkins, and many others, many who would challenge those unjust systems of segregation. And, and they used the Bible to do it. They read the Bible well. And the Bible read well is going to undo any unjust systems. They pointed to God's call for justice, for fairness in the world. And this, of course, begs some questions for us. Like I said, I'm going to start big picture, and we're going to kind of narrow it down too. Where are the areas of legitimate injustices today? The places where people are still mistreated, taken advantage of, or where one group benefits at the expense of another? Like, where do we need to follow the examples of the Wilberforces or the Rosa Parks? Modern-day slavery, like human trafficking, sex slavery, exploitation of workers, forcible marriage of young girls, domestic servitude. There are an estimated 45 million people in slavery today. That's right now around the globe. 45 million people are enslaved still. The refuge ministry we support in Mexico really is working against some of those very features in that country. That's one of the reasons we partner with them. We also need to ask questions like this. Are are there ways that I benefit right now at the expense of others? And and I know these questions are unsettling. Sometimes I'd rather not think about it because, well, it means that I might need to shift my priorities. might mean that I need to shift how I use my money. Uh, If I'm already comfortable, well, it might disrupt that initially. Again, maybe the question comes to us like this. Are there ways that I need to consider giving to use my resources that God has given me to meet real significant human needs in the world. And I think this matters too. When I've seen people become aware of an issue that needs to be addressed, yeah, perhaps it's recognizing that the way that we build structures in our, in our culture is often inaccessible to those in wheelchairs. That's an, that's, an, that's an issue that people have to think about, that we have to think about in terms of just even building practices Or perhaps it's an area of poverty that results from keeping young girls from accessing education in in certain parts of the world. When I see people become aware of these and begin to engage with their resources, 
I actually see people coming alive. They're coming alive. To like, oh, God, this is what I'm made for. I'm made to be a person who works for justice in the world. You know, when we take people to Mexico and we build homes and we do other uh, work for those who have very, very little, I have yet to see someone come back and say, oh, man, that was a waste of time. I don't know why we're, you know, spending our money to build homes for people in Mexico. I never see that. I see this like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I was so blind to the realities of how most people in the world live most of the time. And I want to give myself to something bigger than just the next purchase I have lined up in my cart on Amazon. I don't see people feeling that way. I see them engaged and coming to life. And lest we think that this is only applicable to the quote-unquote big issues, doing what is just and right actually begins in our homes. It really does. It's using our words and our bodies in every space that we inhabit. In Isaiah 58, it speaks of how God's people were taking advantage of their employees. God is saying, you're praising me, and at the same time, you're basically forcing your employees to work when they shouldn't be, and you're not paying them well. So what's, what's, what's the implications of that? It means if you're an employer, pay your employees what's fair, what's good. Treat them well. That's an area of justice. That's an area of fairness. In 1 Peter 3, husbands are told to be considerate to their wives, to treat them respectfully because their wives are weaker. And what he means by that is not necessarily uh, weaker in a physical sense, so that's probably true too. He means that they're vulnerable. In, in the first century, they were treated as less than human, and they were vulnerable to being mistreated. And in 1 Peter, he says basically this. He says, husbands, if you don't treat your wives considerately and treat them with respect, God will not listen to you. He's not going to listen to your prayers if you continue to act like that. And I think in our, in our, in our world, that cuts both ways, that, that spouses need to treat each other well. God is not interested in listening to you if you're interested in, in abusing other people. It, it, that's what the scripture teaches. In James chapter 3, more of the same kind of thing, he talks about how utterly inconsistent it would be to curse people with our mouths, to cut people down, to speak in ways that don't respect the image of God in them, and then to praise God. And he says that, that can't, it, can't, it can't exist. You can't think that, that legitimate worship with your mouth comes out of the same place that you've just cursed someone else out. So all of this to say, justice and righteousness begin with your very closest relationships, treating people with fairness with being kind to them. And here's the very last thing. This is connected. Jesus' hands shape how we use ours. Now, as we, as we close here in just a moment, we, last week we talked about how, how we engage the whole of our bodies in our times of cor- corporate worship, right? When we gather, we talked about all of our bodies being engaged. I love that. I love how Ricky talked about having permission to respond to God that engage our bodies. Raising our hands is one of the things we talked about. That's what the scriptures speak of. And, and doing it not just when we're, quote, unquote, feeling it, but maybe particularly when we're not. And when I raise my hands when we gather in worship, I'm saying a few things. One of the things I'm saying when I raise my hands, I'm saying, God, I am open to receive from you. I'm confessing that I have not lived with justice. Only Jesus is the perfectly just one. And so I need to reorient my life around the just one who gave himself 
who is broken apart because of injustice to make me a person of justice. So I, I say that when I raise my hands. I say, I need to receive your mercy. God, I need it. I need your mercy. I need you. I'm also saying, God, I'm offering myself back to you. I belong to you. I belong to you for your purposes. So when I gather in worship and I raise my hands, it's just one way for me to say to God and to remind myself that my hands are committed to caring for the vulnerable in Jesus' name. These hands are now designated with the task of healing, not hurting. These hands will not do violence, but they will offer mercy, and they'll join my feet in walking humbly with God. At one level then, what we do in gathered worship is so important for shaping what we do with the other six-day spaces. You know, though I put my hands down as I walk back out the doors today, I do so having been reminded what my body is for. I do so having been reminded why I make the decisions that I do. I'm going to call the worship team forward, and as they come, I'm going to invite you to stand, actually. I'm just going to stand together. I'm just going to lead you in prayer, and then we're going to sing one song that will help us to reflect. You don't need to do this, but I'm going to open my hands up to God as a way to say, God, I want to receive from you. You could do the same if you want. You don't need to. But I want to say, God, today we come to you and recognize that you made our hands and our bodies and our lives to bring glory to you. And so for those of us today who've trusted in you, Jesus, we want to offer ourselves back to you. We want to give you our thank you. Because at times, God, our hands have been used for things other than justice. We, like those addressed in Mary's prayer, have been proud at times. I have been proud at times. And so, God, I come to you confessing that I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your healing. And I open myself to being reoriented around the priorities of your kingdom. Priorities that mean caring for those who are poor and oppressed using whatever you've given me, the power, the resources, whatever you've given me, not for me, but to love and serve you and others. And Lord, we give ourselves back to you as a corporate body. We pray that God, together as your community, as this community of faith, that we would work together for the good of those around us, and that all the glory, all the honor, all the praise would be given to you. Amen.